0: So, Rachel, you know, I thought we should talk about gynecologic cancers because it is a really emerging field where we have great screening tests for the common, common female gynecologic cancers, like pap smears for cervical cancer, like mammograms for breast cancer. But one cancer that really scares us, scares practitioners, and scares patients is ovarian cancer. It is the fifth most common cause of female-related cancer, uh, but it is probably the most deadly because it's typically diagnosed late and the uh, screening testing is just not available. So one of the
1: things that we heard in our conversation today with Valerie Parmary, and I've heard it, this expression used before, is that ovarian cancer is the silent killer. What, what does that mean? Why is that? Is it accurate? And how can people find out earlier.
0: One of the pitfalls with ovarian cancer diagnosis is that many of the symptoms are vague. So they're often attributable to much more common and less deleterious situations. You know, bloating, maybe a slight change in menstrual habits, vague GI symptoms. These are also symptoms of ovarian cancer, but that's not usually the first thing we think about. And this goes for practitioners and patients alike. So it has to be on our radar. So one of the things
1: that I've found so amazing um, doing this podcast with you is how long so many very, very life-changing and life-threatening diseases, how long they take to diagnose. So I was particularly excited um, in the conversation today because it sounds like at least for people with pelvic masses, we will be able to diagnose earlier and better and resulting in better outcomes. I I believe the statistic is one in two women who have ovarian cancer die. And a large part of that, as I understand it, is because of the late diagnosis.
0: You are correct. I can't wait to hear more information from Valerie. Welcome to the Business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck,
1: and I'm Rachel Braunshurel. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health.
0: If you are a woman. Know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so excited to have today's guest, Valerie Palmieri, who's the president
1: and CEO of Aspira Women's Health. How are you? Thanks for joining. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So let's jump right in As, as we were talking before the show. Many of the people we speak to on this show, they've gone from totally unrelated fields to women's health. You're really a veteran in this space. Tell us how you got here to be running um, Aspira Health and where the true
2: interest in women's health was born. So I'm a scientist by trade and I've always had, um, I want to say I'm always curious, right? And as I was my my first company, so I worked at several different hospitals, academic systems, and uh, I remember when I got married, I said, I did not want to be another number. Like, I was just looking at these large systems, and I was employee number 30,000, and I literally would see that on my, at, back in those days, we had time cards, right? So I'm aging <laughs> myself. Um, so I knew what number I was, and I said, wow, you know, I'm this big cog in the wheel. I'm going to have to wait for someone to... Retire or pass away to, to move up. And so um, I had just this, you know, always been inquisitive in terms of figuring out things that others haven't figured out and taking things apart and putting them back together again. And so it led me to uh, work for a company that spun out of uh, Kettering. And that company was called, was called Diagnostic Innovations for Oncology. And it was a really unique company. I, I felt uh, at the time um, I got married, I had my husband's income to rely on. I could go work at a startup, take some risks. And the company really premised themselves as a technology transfer company, which meant they were trying to get technology out of large academia centers that they could then offer it nationwide for those that could not afford to visit a large tertiary cancer center. So the mission, and this is back, in the 80s, I'm kind of dating myself again, um, was, was something that I thought was ahead of its time. So took that company um, as a scientist, basically worked at every single job in this startup. And I think in a startup, you had a lot of different opportunities. It's not like you have to come with um, that specific skill set, you're going to learn it on the job. And so um, with that startup, took it from, you know, zero, actually, it was in the red, um, till we sold it to LabCorp in a 2003, 2004. So I was I was part of the executive leadership team that was, you know, primarily responsible for that sale. So that was an amazing experience to grow something from zero to about 1,200 employees, um, doing you know $220 million in revenue, and then being part of a larger company like a LabCorp that you're you're one of the top 20 people in the company of a big company. I'm talking now another 30,000 um, employee company. So um, that's really where it stemmed from, is just uh, trying to ensure that everyone had equal access. We were the first to offer a test that's still in our test today called CA-125. We were the first to offer it nationwide um, as a test for recurrence monitoring for ovarian cancer. So starting with serving the underserved and especially women who are underserved, um, but even underserved to a greater degree, um, especially those that are in lower socioeconomic classes which
1: is amazing, one of the things that we've talked over and over uh, about um, during COVID, which apparently we're still in, is this idea of access to care has taken on even more urgent meaning. It might have just been distance, now it's distance, it's economics, it's availability, so access becomes um, increasingly important. So from there to now you're running Aspira. Tell us about Aspira and the technology um, that it rests on and the solution that it's providing.
2: So um, ironically, Aspira, which was prior name was Vermillion actually spawned out of a Department of Defense grant. So if you can imagine, the DOD paid for a grant to basically create a risk assessment test for ovarian cancer, and you wonder why, well, what's the DOD doing with ovarian cancer or pelvic mass risk assessment? The reason is there's a very large number of women. The average age in the military is about 31, and pelvic masses are very common. So in terms of resources, they put um, resources into this this grant, and they have a very large number of women at this age where they're very common, and they needed to um, basically figure out technology that they could actually measure for pelvic mass risk in the field. So working with Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins was the – the shepherd of the grant, um, and then at the time Quest actually saw this happening, the technology with Vermilion and Johns Hopkins got FDA cleared, and then Quest was the first test, the first laboratory nationwide to launch it uh, back in, back in 20, 2010, so um, here it came from DOD. DOD is honestly one of the largest providers of grants for ovarian cancer still to this day, um, which is just crazy when you think about it. And um, ovarian cancer, to give you another idea, another statistic, so the NIH, you know, has grants for all the different types of diseases, and ovarian cancer receives about a third of the NIH grants on an annual basis versus, like, prostate cancer, um, and prostate cancer survival rate is 98%, and ovarian cancer survival rate is less than 50%. So we get a third of the funding with a survival rate that's, you know, less than 50%. So it's something that we are looking to change Um, as we're doing congressional briefings. We did two this year already.
0: This is great news. I'm thrilled as a gynecologist because ovarian cancer obviously presents so many challenges on a clinical level. You know just for audience sake ovarian cancer is actually not the most common female cancer but it's probably one of the most deadly so it's typically diagnosed at a late stage stage three or beyond and many times it's diagnosed as an incidental finding so um, that's right. something that people need to know it's also a cancer that goes up with age so it usually is a disease of older women but not always and that's what makes me wonder why would the de- Department of Defense be so interested in a uh, cancer that is usually of older women and also the fifth most common cancer rather than the first, second, third, or fourth for women?
2: Well, it's really be- based on majority of them are benign masses. So pelvic masses in general tend to happen with a younger population than they have with the older population. So it was, how do we assess a mass in a non-invasive way? It's risk. Because right now, all the doctors have, as you know, is, is basically we have a laparotomy, right? Or a laparoscope, and we go into exploratory surgery. So this way we can tell the patient and the provider, this is what you're walking into. Just like you would biopsy a derm biopsy or a breast FNA, you know what you're walking into. But until ov one um, came to the market, the doctors really would do surgery in a blinded fashion. Um, and unfortunately, you know, our awareness is still our biggest hurdle. So right now we're gonna to touch, for instance, we released our q numbers, about 4,700 patients. The opportunity is, you know, much, much higher. So we're only touching about 6% of the market right now today um, in terms of, you know, the first FDA clear test and we are in guidelines and we give the doctors information, which they can make a decision. Should I do the surgery locally? or you need to get to a tertiary cancer center, there's only a 1,000 of those doctors in the country that are really equipped, which are g oncologists, to do that surgery. So one of the
1: things that's so, always so astounding to us is how prevalent these conditions are, how, what the cost is, not just the economic cost and the loss of life, but the entire system, losses to families, loss of productivity, um, loss of fertility. It's so shocking, still, as long as I've been in this space, that here you have a proven technology that's working against something that's critically important and hard to diagnose. You would think, and I'm sure ultimately the goal is to have this part of your your annual gynecological exam. What has to happen? What are the forces that are are keeping that from happening?
2: Well, it's, it's really a That mul- is a complex question. And first, I'll, first I'll say is that this test is for women that present with a pelvic mass so it's not yet a screening test and I I can talk about that a little bit because we have technology that we have actually um, discussed some of our partnerships that we're working on so we started working when you look at pelvic masses you have women with PCOS functional cysts um, endometriosis lesions right very large number but when you get down to ovarian cancer as it's just discussed, it is really indication, really can be a rare disease, right? When you look at the numbers, there's 21,000 women, 21,600 to be exact. So what we have here is a situation, we focus on the women that actually are going to surgery, who have a pelvic mass, and to triage those women. So we focused on a smaller population, not 100 million, we're focusing on about 300,000 women that are going to surgery to know who should do that surgery. But as you move up that funnel, and you get to the next group, which would be a high risk screen that genetically are predisposed. So one of the things that we're working on actually with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is for those women that are genetically predisposed, those are the population of women that their genetics um, actually predict if they have a higher risk for ovarian cancer. And in fact, we're doing two studies, one in Israel and the incident rate of genetic predisposition in Israel is one in 40. We're doing another study in the Philippines, it's one in 80 where it's only it's one in 400 in the US. So we as a company have focused with the enriched population starting with a mass to real ovarian cancer, because your chances of ovarian cancer are higher when you have a mass. And then we also are focusing on patient populations that are genetically predisposed. Because if we go out with a screening test out of the gates, it's so hard, number one, for the payers to pay for something because you're, you're trying to find that rare event. And so we're focusing with those enriched cohorts to start. But could there be a day, Rachel, that we actually take what I call high risk screen and move it to asymptomatic or general population screen. That is our hope, and that is the that is the you know I want to say the um, um, holy you grail. You want to say you know the holy grail? That's the word I was trying to think of. The crescendo. That is that is actually the holy grail, which we all and and it also tells you one other thing is that ovarian cancer, because it's rare, because it's aloof, it's not silent, by the way. I, I can't stand when people call it silent, which I'll get into. Um, it, there, it is trying to give symptoms, and women just in nature don't listen to their bodies. It's just our nature. We take care of everyone else. Um, so to find that holy grail, because no one has, we are steep in, I'm going to say, the data, because we have 10 years of research actually now, going on 12 years of research. We started in, you know, FTA clear in 2010. We now have 12 years of, of research and specimens. Um, so I would say we're furthest along, but we still have a ways to go.
0: It's so important to discuss in further detail what you're speaking of and why is ovarian cancer so aloof and so difficult to pick up. First, a lot of the symptoms are very vague and common to other less significant ailments like gastrointestinal issues, irritable bowel, a benign ovarian Mm -hmm. cyst, a urinary tract infection. So a lot of these uh, ailments can cause similar symptoms. Um, I'm very fortunate because I do practice in an area where gynecological oncologists are everywhere. So I'm I'm very fortunate that if I have any concern whatsoever, off they go down to Sloan or somewhere closer by and uh, get taken care of. The other issue is exam. You know, pelvic exam is limited. We can't necessarily feel masses until they're sizable enough. So we often rely on ultrasound which is not perfect, Mm -hmm. and we often rely on a not such a great test CA125, which you mentioned, but to that end, a lot of women, at least in my neck of the woods, in my practice in New York, come in and ask for this testing, and it takes a lot of explanation to really explain why this testing is not ideal, and what type of false positive or false negative results may result, so I really do appreciate your Uh, A perspective on this, where you're taking a much higher risk population, where it's a lot, unfortunately, more common to find an actual ovarian cancer than than in screening the masses.
2: Absolutely, and and to your point, the the current test on the market, which is the most common, which is CA125, which stands for cancer antigen 125, it is actually FDA cleared for recurrence monitoring post ovarian cancer diagnosis. But the real issue is, as you know, physicians just haven't had any other tools. So it de facto has become the, the norm, um, and unfortunately, that education is, you know, doctors are not aware of over one uh, still to this day. So, you know, and just in terms of sensitivity, you also mentioned ultrasound. So early-stage sensitivity, depending on what papers you look at, early-stage sensitivity for ultrasound is, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60%. Um, CA125, same zip code. And in, actually in all ovarian cancer CO125, there's about 20% of them that never have a high CO125. So it's really unfortunate that we still are utilizing this test um, on a regular basis. And unfortunately also in the guidelines, we are equal to CO125. So our end goal is to actually displace it someday with data and studies and publications, but that we're not equal, because right now we have parity to CO125. I
1: just want to clarify, because you just shared so much information for people who are listening and our patients or consumers and think about this. Basically, um, what Valerie is describing is the fact that even though there will be data that suggests that her test is more specific and more accurate, right now they're seen as equal. So physicians aren't as aware of it. You mentioned
2: 6% awareness or was it 6% penetration? 6% penetration so so we have about 6% of the the opportunity so there's 94% of women that do not get our technology that could that could, could you, based on the label
1: will you m- mention again what the accuracy rate is of the test that is considered right now the standard
2: depending on if you look at early stage or late stage so right now for late stage let's just say the sensitivity is you know 80% specificity is 70%, late stage, our sensitivity is 95%, specificity is about 72%, but early stage, we also have very high sensitivity. So it's all about finding the need on the haystack. So out of, out of 100 women, let's just say, you know, maybe two would have ovarian cancer. And it's actually one out of 76, which they say one out of 76, that's the stat. So 1.3% would have ovarian cancer at early stage, CA125 can miss, let's just say 40 to 60% of those women. We actually can catch 90% of those women at early stage. And that's when you actually have a chance to beat the disease. Right now, 65% are found late stage and the survival rate is only like 20 to 29%. It's it's less than 30% is is the survival rate at late stage.
0: Here's today's hot flash. The American Cancer Society estimates for ovarian cancer in the U.S. for 2022, almost 20,000 women to receive a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer and almost 13,000 who will die from that. It is really tough to wrap our arms around this 50% mortality rate. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding this because, you know, OVA1 has been mentioned in the ACOG, which is American College of OBGYN's, you know, uh, protocols or whatnot as something to uh, learn about. But from my best understanding, a pelvic mass needs to be present to also use this testing combination. And so it's it's, it's, just a little surprising that it would pick things up at an early stage with a pelvic mass. So that's really pretty incredible. Oh yeah.
2: It's it's amazing. In fact we just we did a study um that was recently published 150 women and out of those 150 women 48% were early stage. 48% early stage. And the survival rate at early stage this is stage one and stage two is anywhere from 70
0: to 90%. The other thing that surprises me, well, it doesn't surprise me, but I think where there's a little bit of a roadblock with the acceptance of this test, as with so many, is insurance coverage. You know, the first question I get from my patients half the time is not, how much might this test save me or diagnose me early? It's, I'm not sure I want you to do this unless I know for sure my insurance covers it because that's what they think about. And that's kind of sad, but it's real, it's real life. What's your thought on that? Until
2: we, we only brought our sales force out, we had only had five or six people in the field. And just before COVID, we really we hired about 20, and we're gonna be between 30 to 35 this year. But before that, we had to get all the payer coverage locked and loaded, to your point. So that was making the payers be believers that we could change the practice of care. So right now, we have 194 million lives covered. Mean that the, the payers are stating that our technology is medically necessary. So we went from zero to 194. Um, we're not done yet, we wanna get a hundred, 330 million. But with that, almost let's say two thirds of the population covered, and if the other third don't cover, we also get the patients a patient uh, price, which is $195 and they can also go on a payment plan. So our big push, not only commercial, but also on the government side. So Medicare covers it, but more importantly, we want to give access to everyone who, even those that that don't have access to care, we kind of got into that when we started the discussion. So we right now have 78% of the Medicaid uh, lives credentials. And just last year we got New York Medicaid to pay for our tests and cover our tests and say it's medically necessary. So we're one of the few diagnostic companies that actually is leading to get Medicaid coverage Commercial is one thing. Everyone tries, strives for commercial and Medicare, but not many companies actually strive for Medicaid because the hurdles, it's every state, you have to knock on every state door. So we want to ensure that we get equal access to everyone. And I'm very proud of our Medicaid uh, coverage. It is very unique for companies like ours.
1: So you talked a little bit about penetration. The science sounds so exciting. Obviously there's been some acceptance. You're hiring news uh, salespeople to drive it out what will be what do you see as like the watershed moment to go from six percent to 20 and then to 50 what has to change or what has to happen um and you've done obviously people who haven't built businesses like this you know probably have no idea that it could take you know half of your natural life to get not only insurance coverage but Medicaid coverage in the state of New York. So that was already a a, a huge hurdle. What do you see as the accelerant, you know, when you're really going to be able to break through so more people are aware of a test that gives you so much important information early and has huge implications for quality of life for those patients?
2: It really comes down to awareness. Um, You know, I've been leading the company since 2015. I knock on doctor's doors with the reps Uh, visit the clinicians, and once they become aware there is an alternative, they basically say, can you, you know, how do you sign me up? I will state that um, when the test was first launched by Quest with first generation, and the first generation specificity had issues. So we did not launch the second generation of the test until 2019. And once we created the second generation test, which happens a lot in science, like you go out with your first generation and then you listen to your customers and say, and guess what the customers want? Strong sensitivity and specificity. Initially the test was very sensitive, but the specificity was not strong. So we had to then create a test that could do both. And that's what we launched as I said, about two quarters before COVID and then COVID came. And um, I have to say, it was probably one of the toughest leadership years because you really don't know, right? You're in this new world, um, Company that's growing. Should we keep our sales force? We just hired. We kept our sales force, and we came out of COVID very strong. In fact, because our patients had symptomology, it's not like an annual exam. They were, you know, doc. They were going to their doctors. They were saying, Hey, I have pain. Doctors were saying, Well, you have a mask. And guess what? I'm now going to use Ova One to determine if you're low risk. We can we can actually we're going to do surgery, but right now because of the ventilator shortage, we're going to push it off for 30, 60 days. And it gave people peace of mind. In fact, through COVID, a doctor said you should change the name of your test to peace of mind because the majority of my the women who have masses are benign. And the fact that I can tell them this is a test with a 98% negative predictive value, they would just go home and say, Wow. When the ORs open back up, I'll get this mass out. But right now, I have peace of mind. The same thing flip side, if it was high risk, it helped the doctors get access to ventilators um, through COVID.
0: Yeah, I want to explain, because some people may not understand the nuances of specificity and sensitivity. So just simply, and please please, uh, chime in, the sensitivity being how well does a positive test predict an actual positive result and specificity Um, the other way around. How well does a negative test actually predict a negative result? So that those are just uh, always confusing points for so many people.
1: And so in layman's terms, those numbers translate into this is a test that's likely to identify if you have early stage ovarian cancer, it will be able to identify it. Because I think we have all these translations. We, you know, start with the science, then we go to the physicians and the insurance people. But at some point, a physician is going to want to be able to explain to the patient what they're actually saying, you know, and what that means. So I love the statistics and the fact that, you know, you could detect um, early detection in 48%. I mean, these numbers are life-changing. Talk a little bit about the cost of ovarian cancer. So, I mean, there are a number of different impacts of your business. Um, One, you detect early and two, I would imagine you're more likely to inter, to intercept patients before they get to a negative outcome and a very, very costly and life damaging disease. So how does that, what are the economic metrics around early detection?
2: It, it is startling. I mean, right now today, one out of two women die with ovarian cancer. Think about this. In the United States of America, with all the wherewithal that we have, one in two women die it's the only gender specific cancer with greater than a 50 percent mortality rate so we have prostate testicular even you need to look at for female breast cervical this is the it's been almost like this forgotten stepchild um so it's one of the challenges being a ceo i like challenges but but i'm really trying to tackle something that 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 has not been tackled so number one is because it has such a high mortality rate and it's greater than 65 percent is late stage we spend right now, one out of two women, we spend that money, and that woman eventually succumbs to the disease, one out of two. And just to give you a sense of ballpark, what it costs if you have an early stage woman for the surgery, and let's just say she had to have some initial chemo or radiation, on average, about $35,000 to $40,000 one time. On average, a late stage patient with 65% or late stage, the costs her about two hundred dollars to $250,000 per year. Because of the chemotherapy, so 200 to per year, and they live about five years based on the seer data. So we are spending right now, one out of two women, we're spending over a million dollars, and they eventually succumb to the disease. Versus spending a one time of 35 to 40 thousand dollars, and most of all, that patient survives. And the disease, as you know, doctors will tell you, it is one of the most grueling diseases to impact the human body um, so it's not even the cost but the fight that these women undergo is is one of the most grueling so it's all about finding it early early as it is with most cancers it's all about when you have a low tumor burden and that patient has the highest chance of survival but especially with ovarian cancer
1: and it's just so fascinating to hear the numbers because that's obviously part of the the model or the demonstration that you have to show to get insurance coverage. Um, Absolutely. So you've, you have started out um, talking about how you like challenges. So let's uh, finish up that way. You're a CEO in a complicated space where you're pushing a, a boulder uphill and making great progress and the numbers are on your side. What, would, what do you wish you knew? six years ago or, or 10 years ago? Uh, what, what challenge do you wish you had, had predicted? Or, or on the other side, what's a piece of advice that you could give to people who are trying to do the combination of things you are, which is drive awareness, build categories, save people's lives, save money, um, do a whole lot of good
2: things, but not enough people are listening. I wanna say the government impact. I did not start really Inserting myself into government affairs only in the last 12 months, and you know, for whatever the reason, whether it's the new administration, whether it's just the Me Too movement, I, we've gotten the ear of quite a few members of Congress. Like I'm, I'm just amazed at it, and I'm, I wasn't expecting it um, to the point that. I presented, it was actually part of Springboard Enterprises. So on Springboard, I got eight minutes of fame. They took four companies. And um, this was in March of 2021. And um, Congresswoman Dean, um, she actually was the chair of the discussion. And she said she only had basically 10 minutes and she was going to be moving off. So I was the second one to present. And I knew the first person had eight minutes. I said, oh my gosh, I only have two minutes with her and I've got to make my, my, got to take this opportunity and make my presence with her in terms of this impact. And um, she stayed the entire time. So what I wish I knew is that there's people that you don't think would listen, want to listen and want to help. Is it pushing a mountain up a hill a little bit? It is, but I but wanna say, so I had that meeting in March. We had another congressional briefing. I was asked to come back and do a full 30 minutes with patients and clinicians. We now have a Diane Powis, who was our chief spokeswoman, a Diane Powis testing act, which states that every Medicare patient should have access to multi-marker testing. It is agnostic because there's, there's one other test out there that has two markers. We have five. And I'll go into why we are picking it a bit early too, but we're now on an act that will technically we're looking at going in place as of January, 2023, that'll ensure everyone gets access to that. Um, so, so here in literally six months, we made impact, which I never thought, um, I never thought we would, I literally said, it's going to be a waste of time. It's going to be a bunch of talking heads. So that surprised me. Um, what, uh, what, what word of the wise, um, I, I would just say, you know, do what do what your heart tells you to do. And, um, like this Medicaid, um, push. And so you may ask, well, why are you pushing on it? One is I want to ensure everyone has equal access. But I also, one of the things that, and I would say diversity, do studies that are diverse. So one of the things that drove me to really um, understand diverse populations is we did studies in Philippines. Why Philippines? It's pennies on the dollar to run a study in Manila versus running a study in New York. But this study was the canary in the mind for us because it demonstrated the Filipino population had a different recovery of proteins than the U.S. population, than the Caucasian population, so it forced me to look at the Black population, and then we did a study looking at the Black population. The current current testing can miss up to 50% of cancers in the Black population, while we catch close to 80%, and the reason is the cancers the Black population gets with ovarian cancer are different than Caucasian women, because who had access to care 40 years ago when CM25 first came out was Caucasian women, so... One of the things I, I wish I knew, but in terms of going for the fences, if there's new int- entrepreneurs out there, make sure that you are looking at diversity and ethnicity, so you're looking at personalized risk. You cannot, um, and maybe you stick with one race to begin with, but don't forget that we're not homogeneous. That is so, so important, and it's one of the things that right now, if investors ask me what keeps me up at night, that we have um, data on the black population that I'm only, I can only get out as, as much as we can talk about, it, as much as our sales reps can talk about it. And it's, it's important that doctors really see that there's a difference in CA 125 um, based on different races.
0: You know, this is really resonating as a clinician because that's what I do all day. And it really brings to light the fact that personalized care is the future. And when you spoke about perhaps linking and associating genetic markers with now uh, blood testing that could, uh, you know, just shed more light on the subject, you know, th- this is how we're going to start managing medicine in future. And totally. So it's been a pleasure. And you've, you've taught me an awful lot. Um, I, I feel like uh, I'm going to enter my office tomorrow with a uh, totally different lenses on.
1: <laughs> we're cheering you on every step of the way. Thank you for all the amazing work you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for uh, building the awareness through this
0: podcast. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.